You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Why is it so difficult to predict life expectancy for patients with non-cancer diagnoses? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Perry Fine. Dr. Fine is a professor in the Department of Anesthesiology in the School of Medicine at the University of Utah and Senior Fellow for Medical Leadership for the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Dr. Fine, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thanks very much, Susan. Pleasure to be here. Why is it so difficult to predict life expectancy for patients with non-cancer diagnoses? Well, I think there are several reasons. The four most is that the way disease expresses itself in any given individual is highly variable. Of course, with chronic progressive illness of one sort or another, it's not often just one illness. In fact, most patients as as they age in the over 65, 70, 75 age group have several chronic conditions. And so the interface of these medical conditions oftentimes create a difference in the trajectory and the expression of the disease that may end up being the ultimate cause of death, whether it's heart failure or um, renal disease, um, liver failure, neurological disease, and so forth. The other probably biggest, uh, you know, even more so than the medical trajectory and expression of disease, is uh, the social context in which we live. I think that as individuals, that the choices we make, the decisions we make in terms of our, the way we live our lives, the way we take our medicines, the way we pursue health care, uh, adherence to any given medical plan of care, the variability in the access to different types of medical care or expertise, you know, the, the variations and the variables are so extraordinary that it really is no wonder that a given patient with, say, uh, New York Heart Classification Stage 3 heart failure may have anywhere from six months to five years and six months of, of life expectancy. As we follow the course of diseases um, epidemiologically, of course, what we have are population-based means and, 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 uh, and uh, median life expectancies, which are very poor predictors uh, for any given individual. Describe the evidence-based guidelines for determining prognosis in some non-cancer diseases. Well, this really goes back actually many years now, almost, uh, gosh, even more than 10 years ago, when... Um, there was an effort on, on behalf uh, by the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. At that time, it was a National Hospice Organization to create some guidelines, purely some guidelines, to help physicians evaluate their patients and determine that, in fact, they would be eligible um, for hospice, hospice services under the Medicare hospice benefit because of the, the way the benefit was defined as available to Medicare beneficiaries who had a life expectancy of six months or less. Physicians were oftentimes very, found themselves in a a sort of awkward position of not knowing who that really applied to, you know, who's got six months to live or um, less. And and, uh, mostly it was relatively easy to determine for patients with metastatic cancer, um, but not so easy for patients with heart failure, progressive neurological disease, um, and, and so on. And so this was an effort to expand the, the, um, the benefits of hospice to patients other than those with cancer, because 75% 75% of, of patients with chronic illness in this country more or less um, don't have cancer and, and would benefit from these same uh, services that hospice provides. So that was sort of the beginning of it. And, well, Medicare, who, you know, who provides this benefit, decided that they needed to sort of operationalize uh, this definition of six months or less life expectancy and so left it to the, um, the Medicare fiscal intermediaries we're covering the, you know, basically pay, the payors for this benefit to hospices to create some policies around those guidelines. In some ways, this was helpful in that it, it, it gave, uh, in, a, in a sense, permission for physicians to um, 
refer their patients without a sense or worry that they were, uh, or it gave some determinants, if you will, clinical determinants for physicians to follow for referral of their patients. On the other hand, it was also viewed as perhaps too proscriptive and not adherent to the fact that there is such variability from patient to patient. And, but we've, I think, continued to struggle on with, uh, with this over the last um, 10 years to try and evaluate what are those clinical determinants where a physician could evaluate a patient and say that they would not be surprised if this patient did not live more than 6 to 12 months. And uh, what are those clinical indicators that would be um, most useful in helping guide those uh, physician evaluations? And that's sort of where we now stand with trying to evaluate the evidence for life expectancy. Although I will say that we're not that much further along today than we were 10 years ago, simply that um, the variability still just uh, is, is so extreme that we just have to make the best of what we have um, in any given patient. Uh, but we can talk perhaps um, now if we move forward with some of those uh, determinants which I think would be helpful for physicians to evaluate and look at their patients and um, be able to refer with confidence. Dr. Fine, how accurate are the guidelines? It turns out they're very, really actually not very accurate at all. The sensitivity and specificity of almost all of the current guidelines for prognostication in non-cancer diagnoses are just not that accurate. The predictive value of uh, almost any of the determinants we have, that single determinant, other than for patients who are clearly only in their last throes and you know, within hours to days of, of death, we're pretty good there. But you know, what we really need to do is to evaluate um, the patient and, and help them in a timely manner get into a hospice program so that they can be supported and their needs can be met. Um, and avoid the kind of crises um, that uh, ultimately lead people to several hospitalizations that are that are not only very very costly, but not necessarily what patients are seeking or what they want in the last year or two of life. So, what we um, we need, nevertheless, to to rely upon the best indicators we have. And one of the things we're doing um, at the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization is working with experts in the area of dementing illness, in the areas of of heart failure, in renal disease, and so forth to evaluate the, the current evidence, the literature, the kinds of studies that are needed to improve upon um, prognostication. One of the, I think, very interesting things for physicians to think about is the extraordinary variability in our own views that lead to prognostic inaccuracy. There's a researcher currently at Harvard, Nick Christakis, who's done a lot of work in this way, looking at the uh, social variables as well as the uh, medical variables that lead to such difficulties in, in prognosis, and has found, for instance, in patients who most physicians would agree have end-stage disease, an eight-fold variance in patients with, who ultimately do die within 30 days of, that, of the, of the uh, physician evaluation. And so I think that shows that we still have a long way to go to not only educate ourselves, but to uh, research the, uh, and find more uh, specific and accurate measures. What did he discover are the reasons for the eight-fold variance? Well, one of the reasons, which is actually very interesting, is that the longer the relationship between the physician and the patient the more excessively optimistic the prognosis was. So it says something about us and our almost our desire and our wish for life expectancy in the patients who we have a closer relationship with. And it, in a sense, creates greater subjectivity than objectivity in our ability to evaluate. And I'm not suggesting that we refer patients to uh, physicians who, who, you know, to strangers in order to make these assessments. But I think what if we confront our own subjectivity and the difficulties in having conversations with patients about end-of-life issues, it really helps us to return to um, a sense of our duties as physicians 
to um, have those oftentimes emotionally difficult conversations and, and train ourselves to do that, not without compassion and without empathy, but to be a little bit more um, accurate and discerning so we can get patients to the care paths that uh, will serve their interests the most. What is the best way for physicians to determine when a patient with non-malignant disease is eligible for hospice care? I think the most broad-stroked question would be to look at the patients you're taking care of, especially if you, if you have a, a practice with um, older patients or patients with advanced medical illness, and just simply ask yourself, would I be surprised if this patient did not live another year? That's a pretty good intuitive marker that says, you know, let me look a little more closely and say, why did I come to that conclusion? Is it because they've had several hospitalizations over the course of the year? Is it because there's something about their energy, their activity, their ability to manage themselves seems to be waning? There seems to be progressive weight loss in spite of a reasonable diet. You know, these are the kinds of uh, markers that we oftentimes take note of in a gestaltish kind of a way. And if we focus a little bit more on why we come to those intuitive conclusions, we oftentimes will find that there's some objective measures behind them. If a patient doesn't meet hospice admission guidelines, but the doctor believes the patient will live fewer than six months, what do you advise? What I advise is that physicians simply make an indication as to why they came to that conclusion. And oftentimes it is because the patient has lost a supportive care system. They no longer have anyone uh, in their environment who can provide uh, uh, for instance, a, a spouse dies, who was largely responsible for creating the structure that allowed that patient to uh, do as well as they did. Or the patient um, is simply no longer, um, doesn't seem as vibrant and is interested in, um, you know, without, without frank depression, the patient simply has sort of lost their lust for life or is losing weight um, in spite of seemingly a reasonable attempt at, at uh, a nourishment, simply to note and document those reasons. There is absolutely no punishment whatsoever that has ever been levied against a physician for referring a patient to hospice in order for them to get their, their care needs met and for the patient living and exceeding a life expectancy of six months. That's not the issue. The issue is, is really the, uh, the converse of that, which is to make sure that all patients who do have limited life expectancy, whether it's three months or six months or more, there's a sense that, in fact, they will not live uh, more than months that they actually do get the opportunity to get all of their their care needs met at that time. What do you advise when patients show signs of improvement under hospice care and maybe the family wants to discharge them? Again, there's no penalty or problem associated with that. In fact, what's been observed, and this is actually very interesting, a study that was just published by Steve Connor, who's the the Vice President of Research at, at NHPCO and others, looking at the consequences actually of hospice admission. And as it turns out, being admitted to hospice with either one of several cancer diagnoses or heart failure, actually, in, again, in terms of, of large populations of patients, actually le- leads to longer life expectancy, oftentimes, even up to a month of longer life expectancy, than patients who are similarly situated, um, similar, um, you know, similar variables, but who don't end up being admitted to hospice. And what we think, hypothesize, is that the intensity of caregiving and the provision of symptom-relieving care and support in hospice somehow leads to longer life expectancy as a, as a you know, in a sense, a complex but independent variable. So what I think what we, what we do is not just simply because somebody is seeming to improve once they enter a hospice program, but to see how, in fact, over time, the trajectory of their disease progresses. If they continue to improve over the course of several months, 
to the point where, in fact, it looks like they're thriving rather than dying, then, in fact, uh, there is an obligation to discharge that patient to a different care program because, at least under Medicare, the hospice benefit is is, um, is not meant for that purpose. I think the problem that not so much that uh, we have with the notion of discharging patients or families who want to discharge their, their loved ones is what are we discharging them to? And I think this becomes an ethical issue oftentimes for hospice programs and also for family members when we say, well, you know, the patient no longer um, has life expectancy of six months or less based upon, you know, here going forward, based upon the improvements they've made. And we think this is why they've made their improvements because of this intensity of caregiving services. How do you replicate that outside of hospice is oftentimes very difficult. Dr. Fine, thank you for joining us today. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.